Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the 1976 film Family Plot. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. So, what do you do for an encore after creating the most famous movie score of all time, at least up to that point? I don't think John Williams felt the pressure to create another iconic score, but Universal Pictures, the studio that was now rolling in dough as Jaws became the biggest movie of all time, definitely wanted to strike while the iron was red hot. So, Universal put Williams to work in 1976 with two films. Williams had a few months after recording Jaws to enjoy the success. My thinking is that he also used this brief downtime to get back to writing his violin concerto, which he started in 1974 as a tribute to his wife who had died suddenly. That concerto wouldn't be finished until 1976, but putting in some time to polish the piece had to be cathartic for Williams. Universal had two projects set up for Williams in 1976, Family Plot and Midway. In some ways, they are nothing like Jaws, but the chameleon that he is, Williams was ready to tackle these two very different projects. And in the middle of these projects would come the Missouri Breaks by United Artists to give Williams three 1976 releases. I'm going to admit that for many years, I thought of 1976 as a gap year for John Williams, in which he wrote no music between Jaws in 1975 and Star Wars in 1977. It's very telling that many John Williams fans I've talked to regard 1976 as such a year, and that speaks volumes about the three films with which he was assigned to write the score. But perhaps with this podcast, we'll find a deep appreciation of the music that served as a bridge between two revolutionary scores. Though it would be released third in line, Midway's score was recorded first in December 1975. I'll talk about that score in a couple of episodes, but it's helpful to know that Williams started work on that score before Family Plot, which was the first of his three films put into theaters in 1976. With Family Plot score recorded in January 1976, that meant Williams only had a month to put together a score for Family Plot. And he didn't need much time to record it, taking only three days in mid-January 1976 to conduct the studio orchestra. Now while that may seem like a big deal, the bigger topic concerning the creation of this score comes long before one note was ever written. Alfred Hitchcock was the director of Family Plot, and in the mid-1970s, he was regarded as a great director of the past, not so much of the present. Historians regard 1960 Psycho as Hitchcock's last great film, citing its follow-up, The Birds, as the beginning of an era of lighter and trashier drama. Family Plot is one of the few comedic films in the Hitchcock canon, and for many reasons, that's why it never fared well. When people think of Hitchcock, they don't think comedy. And that's a shame because Family Plot is a pretty decent movie. It is a comedy in that the proceedings are not taken seriously by the actors, or the director for that matter. I wouldn't say most of the scenes are played for laughs, and not just because I didn't laugh at all. And I'm surprised that even today it's largely ignored because it would turn out to be Hitchcock's final film. 
When it came time to hire a composer for Family Plot, Hitchcock was understandably hesitant. He and his longtime collaborator Bernard Herrmann had parted ways in 1965 when Hitchcock asked Herrmann to write a song for the film Torn Curtain and its star Julie Andrews. Herrmann refused, and the composer and director ended their relationship right then and there. Hitchcock considered many other top composers for Family Plot, and the search ended when John Williams' name was thrown into the hat. Perhaps because Williams was a mainstay at Universal Pictures, or perhaps because Williams was recommended by the studio's music head, or perhaps because Hitchcock and Williams had offices mere feet away from each other, but the two met and agreed to work together to create a score that sets the right tone. But not before Williams had a talk with Herman, who had been a good friend for many years. Though Williams didn't need Herman's blessing, I suppose this was similar to someone asking for permission to marry his friend's ex-wife or something. It's just good manners. So, off Williams went to record this score, and I think he had sinister music in mind to underscore the story of two couples trying to con their way into the rich life. But Hitchcock had other ideas. Here's John Williams talking about that in an interview found on the 2002 DVD release of the film. He told me a story about having nothing to do with Bernard Herrmann, some other composer, I don't know, on a film that he made about a murder. And he instructed the composer to make the music light. So he said he went to London to record the music, and this composer had every double bass and bassoon and timpani and every instrument in the city of London capable of making an ominous, lugubrious sound, just the opposite of what he wanted. So I said to him, Mr. Hitchcock, seems like for a murder that's very appropriate. And I always quote him because I remember his words exactly. He said, Mr. Williams, murder can be fun. <laughs> so he had this idea of irony and many sides to the prism of what one sees. I wish Williams had done that in Hitchcock's voice. Mr. Williams, murder can be fun. I'm not sure I did it right, so probably good that Williams didn't try it. So anyway, at the direction of Hitchcock, Williams had his new direction for the score. Instead of ominous strings, he employed the harpsichord and lighter instruments to highlight the comedy aspect of the story. But there is one dark scene of note that I'll mention later. After working on the thriller Jaws and the war movie Midway, this project was probably very welcome for Williams. Though it's not a full-blown comedy, it has lighter moments that haven't been in a film that Williams has worked on since possibly The Reavers seven years earlier. And there's no major opening credits in the film, so no opportunity to set up the main themes right away. After a shot of a crystal ball that displays the film's title, we get to our first scene, which shows a woman named Blanche performing a seance as an elderly woman watches. And the music here is mixed too low in the film, but I was able to notice the presence of female voices singing a wordless harmony. Luckily, you get to hear only the music here.
In the words of Williams, Hitchcock wanted the female voices to underscore Blanche's seances with the widow Rainbird. If I'm not mistaken, this is the first time Williams has used voices in his score, at least in a score where a song has not been used and therefore a choir would be already in the studio. It is effective for the scene, connecting us to that other world, even if Blanche is not really a psychic. After Blanche leaves the house, the seance music is performed by the flute, leading into Blanche's theme on the clarinet and flute as she meets her cohort and lover, George, outside. Blanche must find Mrs. Rainbird's only heir, a boy who was put up for adoption by her sister. George almost hits a strange woman with his car, and suddenly we're following this blonde woman named Fran wearing sunglasses late at night to the police station. Though you might think this is a very mysterious scene, especially because we don't know Fran's motives, Williams keeps it light with the harpsichord playing a bit of a march. Thank you. 
There are two new themes introduced in that music, and both of them are for Fran's boyfriend, Arthur Adamson, played with mustache-twirling perfection by William Devane. Later, we will discover that Arthur is the lost heir that stands to inherit the Rainberg fortune. And instead of writing a theme for just the one person, Williams writes a theme for each of Arthur's identities. One of the themes is called the Shoebridge theme, the last name of his adopted parents. It is the longer theme played on strings and is going to feature more prominently throughout the film. The Arthur Adamson theme is a little more playful, even though Arthur's side job is kidnapping. This is the music you heard in the March-like performance. I love how Williams and his team orchestrated these themes, keeping the harpsichord as a way to reinforce Hitchcock's mandate of making it fun. And of course, with Williams being such a virtuoso on the piano, his harpsichord writing is obviously going to be unmatched. But it's the strings that really sell it. So Williams writes two themes for one person, and this won't be the last time he does this. Remember that with Superman and Indiana Jones, those characters also get a primary theme and a secondary theme. So, I mentioned a scene with very dark and ominous music, and it comes 35 minutes into the film when George hears a story of the supposed heir of the widow Rainbird killing his adopted parents and then presumably dying as well in the fire. The story doesn't add up, especially since the headstone for the boy's adopted parents is much older than his, even though all three died the same year. Williams highlights this mystery perfectly with the Shoebridge theme we heard earlier on the strings, now played more slowly by a synthesizer. It gets really good when what sounds like a bass clarinet comes in to lead a lengthy statement of the Shoebridge theme on the flute.
So the two stories of George and Blanche and Arthur and Fran begin to intersect again as the mystery becomes more evident and Arthur becomes concerned that his real identity will be uncovered. What's funny is that Arthur thinks his role in his adopted parent's death is the reason George and Blanche are following him, but they are actually trying to tell him he is going to inherit millions. Arthur hires a friend named Maloney to kill George and Blanche on a mostly deserted road, and this is the only real action music in the film. And as you listen to it, you can't help but wonder if Williams got to sneak in a little Bernard Herman homage with the prevalent use of strings. I wonder if Williams always intended to put in an homage to his friend, and this definitely seemed like a good place for it. You also have to wonder if Hitchcock noticed the nod to Herman. As we have seen in various other films, the montage sequence is like catnip to a composer. Usually there is no dialogue and it naturally calls for music to connect the scenes. Williams does that so well in a montage sequence in Family Plot in which Blanche goes all over town looking for Arthur Adamson. Using the phone book, she hunts down all the people named A. Adamson with some great comic effect in the visuals. In the music, we get Blanche's theme played wonderfully on the harpsichord and strings. This is the type of music Williams wrote a decade earlier for films such as Bachelor Flat and Fitzwillie.
When Blanche arrived at Arthur's jewelry store, the music took a dark turn, playing the dual themes for the man she is looking for. And then once Blanche gets the information she needs, the music gets back to the lighter side of things. The finale of the film has Blanche confronting Arthur Adamson at last, and just after she gives him the good news about his inheritance, she discovers Arthur's latest kidnapping scheme. In order to keep her quiet, Arthur decides to add Blanche to his list of kidnapping victims. The tense moments during this confrontation are scored wonderfully, as Williams uses Arthur's theme on synthesizer and modulating strings to keep us wondering what will happen to Blanche.
Of course, Arthur decides to add Blanche to his list of kidnapping victims, and he drugs her with a needle. The struggle gets furious strings and piano hits that leads to the strings following Blanche as she collapses to the floor unconscious. Blanche awakes from her unconsciousness just as George comes to rescue her. They both trick Arthur and Fran and lock them in a secret room while they call the police. Blanche seems to show that she's really psychic when she locates the diamond Fran secured from the kidnapping plot at the beginning of the film. And the voices come back as we follow Blanche through her psychic powers. And in Hitchcockian fashion, just as we believe Blanche really is a psychic, she turns to the camera and gives us a cheeky wink as her music laughs along with her.
that leads us to the end credits, which features a more upbeat version of the Shoebridge and Adamson themes, even though Arthur Adamson does not get a happy ending. As I said before, it's a shame Family Plot doesn't have as high regard among Hitchcock's films. It's certainly not a terrible film, and of course, a lot of it is saved by John Williams' music. There's a scene early on when Blanche and George are driving on a winding road after Maloney has cut their brake line. They are speeding down the road uncontrollably, and Blanche's reactions are just ludicrous to the point that I can't believe Hitchcock let them into the movie. I think Williams should have written something to help that scene, and it would have really helped. But as it is, Family Plot feels like a welcome change for Williams, and yet another opportunity to showcase his ability to write good music for any type of film, and compose in a style that meshes with the director's vision. This is why, at least as far as I know, that Williams has never had his music rejected in favor of another composer's work. He knows what the director wants and doesn't try to put his own stamp on it, even if it takes away from the mood of the film. I'm sure Williams would have been glad to work on another Hitchcock film, but it wasn't meant to be. Hitchcock was working on another film shortly after Family Plot, but his health had seriously deteriorated to the point that he needed a pacemaker. When it came time to work on a spy film called The Short Night, Hitchcock felt he didn't have the strength to direct it in late 1979. He died April 29, 1980. At least we can add Alfred Hitchcock to the list of esteemed directors to have a John Williams score in their films. Williams would add to that list just a month later when he took on Arthur Penn's western, The Missouri Breaks. And that's the film I will unpack for you on the next episode. As always, I urge you to submit a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts or post a comment on the Podbean app. And if you like, you can send me an email to jeffswim at aol.com. Those who have written to me can attest that I always take the time to write back. It's been a pleasure talking about the score to Family Plot on this episode, and until next time, the baton is down. <laughs>